So um, today we are in the book of Matthew. So we're between two series. We just finished up our, our Christmas series in the book of Luke. And next week when Joe comes back, we are going to be in the book of Esther. So Joe gave me uh, kind of one of those free-for-all sermons. Preach wherever you want to, Josh, which I always struggle with because when you have the whole Bible, where do you choose from, right? Uh, so I was thinking of that and I was also thinking this is the very first sermon of the year. What do I, as your pastor, want you to hear from God's word? And more importantly, what do I think God wants you to hear from his word today? Uh, as I was thinking of it, I was brought to mind a book that I've read quite a few times. It is a book in our library. Uh, it's called The Bruised Read. This was written by a Puritan author. And I realize if you are not in theology, Puritans to you might just be like those guys with the, the black hats. And you might have this image of these sour, grumpy people who had no fun and were kind of legalistic. That's kind of the popular image of them. But the Puritan writers were actually incredibly compelling. Yes, they took sin incredibly seriously. Uh, they were abhorred by it. But it wasn't out of some legalistic sourness where they didn't want to have fun. They abhorred sin because they saw how much joy and pleasure it robbed from us as Christians. And their, their writings are so full of the excellencies of Christ. Um, and this book may be even most of all of the Puritan authors. It is it has affected so many Christians through the centuries, and myself included. And, and much of what I'm about to preach to you today from the text actually comes from this book. So if you want to read it, uh, it is a Puritan. It might be a little uh, harder to read through uh, than your average book, but it is it is very much worth it. And it's in our library for you guys to grab and work through if you, if you want to. Um, but we are in the book of Matthew, and we are going to be Matthew chapter 12. So if you turn to there, um, as you're turning to Matthew chapter 12, I want you to kind of ponder this question in your mind, right? And this is, this is why I wanted to go to this text today. When you think of God and you and your relationship, how does God feel about you? Right. Another way to phrase that is, how is, what is God's heart towards you? And I think many of us as Christians will easily say off the very, very Christian answer, well, God loves me, of course. But when we think of it past that, a lot of us have very screwed up definitions of love. And so we might say, yes, God loves me, but our attitude towards him and the way that we view him is, but kind of under our breath, uh, but I'm not sure he likes me very much. Right? Or, or when you approach him, you feel in your prayers when you come to him a sort of disappointment or a looming angry parent image of God when you come to him in prayer. I think many of us suffer with that. And as the uh, theologian A.W. Tozer once said, that the most important thing about any person is what they in their bones believe to be true about God. I'm not just talking about the mental truth. All of us know God loves us in our head, right? But what do you deep in your bones believe to be true about God? That affects everything else about your life. And so the way that you answer this question, what does God feel about you? What is his heart towards you? 
is actually incredibly, incredibly important. So I want to lead us through Scripture and show us what exactly God's heart is towards us. So if you would stand with me for the reading of Scripture, we're going to be in Matthew 12. We're going to start in verse 15. Um, Actually, I'm going to start in verse 14. I'll explain that in a second. But verse 14 says this, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. And he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Father, I pray that you would make your word known to us, that through it you would show us exactly what you feel towards us, exactly what your heart is towards us, and that by that knowledge, that it would not just stick in our heads, that it would sink deep into our bones, and that we would rest confident in our knowledge of what, how, who we are to you, and that it would change everything about us. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated again. To pick up the context before we dive into the text, you need to understand what is going on in this section of Matthew. And there's a series of stories and teachings, and they all kind of fit together. It starts off with just in the beginning of chapter 11, the John the Baptist has been arrested. And sitting in his jail cell, which will eventually lead to his brutal execution, where because of... Uh, because of basically the the governess, uh, the governor's wife, um, not liking that John called um, Herod and her out for their sins, wanted revenge on John, and so she she had her daughter have Herod execute and behead John and basically give the head as a trophy. Right? This is this brutal and cruel execution. But this is before he dies. John in prison is kind of feeling a bit discouraged. And and so he sends his apostles to ask Jesus, hey, are you actually the Messiah? Has all of my work and my teaching and this jail time, has it been worth it? Are you actually the Messiah? Have I actually been announcing your coming? Or should we wait for someone else? He's feeling discouragement. And it goes on, and, and Jesus continues this teaching, and he gets in confrontation with the religious leaders at that time over the Sabbath. You see, Jesus is trying to teach that the Sabbath was a gift from God to give rest to human beings. But the the Pharisees and the religious leaders had made this rest, this Sabbath, into an obligation, and they'd heap these burdens onto ordinary people, this burden that just was unbearing and that robbed people from rest. And so you have these series of confrontations with Jesus. And right in here, um, it, right before this story, it kind of, the, that confrontation reaches its peak. You see the Pharisees hoping to trap Jesus, bring in this man who had a withered and paralyzed hand. 
because they thought, hey, I know what we'll do. We're going to bring in someone who is who is hurt and who is who has a withered hand and who can't do work with it and is suffering from that because we know Jesus just can't resist healing him. And they thought that if Jesus healed him, it would prove all the bad things they were saying about him. I mean, think about the mindset you have to be in for a second to be like, hey, we're going to have Jesus heal this guy and we're going to be the heroes here, right? Your, your view of God has to be a very harsh one if you think you're going to come out the better for that. And, and after Jesus heals them, but not only heals them, confronts them over this, this overbearing religious burden that they're putting on people, he goes and he tr- and kind of withdraws from the public light and he begins healing people in more private, right? And that leads, in, in the, the Matthew through the Holy Spirit says that this shows that Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy in Isaiah. And what's interesting about this prophecy that I want to bring up is, in it we see the nature and the personality and the posture of who Jesus is. And that's what I want to draw your attention to today. Because when we talk about how does God feel about you, well, he answers that question by giving us Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. And elsewhere in Scripture, it says that he is the image of the invisible God. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what his heart is towards us as human beings, you only have to look to Jesus and you will see it. And so when we go to the Gospels and we see Jesus' posture and his heart and his attitude towards the sinners and the hurting and the wounded around him, We know that that is God's heart towards the sinners and the hurting and the wounded even to us today, right? And this prophecy in Isaiah highlights that really well. The first thing it notices that Jesus was not the type of man who was looking for confrontation. And you might be reading some of Jesus' stories and go, really? Because he seemed to have gotten into quite a few confrontations. That is true. But that's, not, that's because Jesus' teaching of grace is so offensive to people who are hardened to grace. Uh, and I think that's true even today. Uh, it's surprising, right, that a teaching of grace and mercy is offensive. But I found that for a fallen human being, there's nothing more offensive than grace and mercy. And so it's not that Jesus looked for confrontation. In fact, he often actively avoided it. Even telling the people he healed, hey, don't tell people about this. I healed you, but don't go and make a fuss about it. Avoiding confrontation, which is oftentimes not the image that we have of Jesus, right? I know growing up, I really liked the stories of Jesus flipping temple tables and calling the Pharisees out as snakes and sons of vipers and and those stories. But what we'll see is those stories are so spectacular because the image of Jesus is actually one of a humble and meek and gentle, compassionate man. And those stories are so striking, not because Jesus is just some, like, this guy bursting in, confronting sinners all the time. It's so striking because What is it that makes a gentle and meek and compassionate man so angry? And that should strike us. And and often what it was, it was religious leaders placing an incredible and an unbearable burden upon people of God falsely in the name of God, right? 
Now let's look more closely at the scripture. So uh, at this prophecy in particular, behold my servant whom I have chosen. God, the Father, talking about the future Messiah through Isaiah here, saying, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. So we know first off that even though Jesus is God, he comes in the form of a servant. When he first came, he says he did not come to be served, even though he's God, and by all rights that is due him, but instead he came to serve. The king and creator of the universe, when he became a human being, did not come primarily to be served, he came to serve, which is incredible and I think striking. And then it goes on, it says, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. That's important, of course, and it shows that Jesus came not just for the Jewish people, and that is known even in the beginnings of his ministry, that Jesus came not just for the Jewish people, but for all people and all human beings, that all might be saved. And it says, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. This is the one I think we most connect with this section of scripture because it's showing Jesus wasn't trying to quarrel or start fights in the street. He was teaching the truth of the gospel. But the reason he withdrew is because this is not what he was trying to do. He was not trying to start fights. He's merely trying to teach truth. But the section of scripture, the, the section of this prophecy I most want to focus on is this next part. Uh, it's the part that this book really draws out in detail, but I think it shows us a lot about the heart of God towards us. It says this, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. I want you to think about the two images that given about Jesus in this prophecy. The first one is a bruised reed. In other words, this image is one of hurting human beings who are in pain. And, and if we're following the story of Scripture, we know that one of the consequences of human beings rebelling against God is that we have invited in death and disease and warfare, and hatred. And with all of that, the consequences is that every human being has become bruised by the fall. Every human being carries within us our own hurts and our own pains. And how does God feel about you? About the hurting? How does God feel about those who are in pain, those who are suffering? Well, it says here that he is gentle and compassionate, that even though this reed is bruised, that in his hands he will not break it. In fact, the, the implication is one that Jesus will not only not break it, but through the rest of the scripture, he will heal and strengthen and care for that bruised and hurting reed. We can see that in the very story that preceded this section of scripture. I mean, think about that man for a second in the story, the man who had this withered hand, who in this time, this would have meant that he could not do almost any job. That would have meant he would have suffered for as long as his hand was withered and, and not be able to work and not be able to gain money. And not only that, in this time, those who were injured were often viewed as having brought that on themselves. 
people at the time would have seen that and they would have been like, God is punishing him for something that he has done. And he would have been viewed as an outcast. And not only that, not only all the consequences of a withered hand and the social outcast that comes from it, but on top of that, this man was basically being used as an object lesson by the Pharisees. They invited him in just to trap Jesus, and they made this public ridicule of this man. And yet, how does Jesus treat him? Well, Jesus confronts those who are misusing him. He confronts the religious leaders. And in his compassion, even though Jesus knows it's a trap and knows that it's going to anger the religious leaders, he still heals that man. Look at him. Uh, which uh, Earlier it says this. Jesus says, Which one of you have, who has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not take hold of it and lift it out? Oh, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? And then he looked at the man and he said, stretch out your hand. And when he did so, he was healed. How does Jesus feel about those who are hurting and in pain and who are outcasts? He has compassion on them, just like this man. And even though it was a trap, he reached out to this man and he healed this man in this moment. But not just healed him, but in speaking up for him and defending him and saying, look, you guys... You guys will rescue an animal that is trapped on the Sabbath. How much more value is a human being? And he restores dignity to this man. But you see, most people who are bruised and are hurting and are in pain also have to carry with that a certain guilt. Because yes, oftentimes we are hurt by other people. We are hurt by circumstances. We are in pain because of what is done to us. But just as true for each of us is that Oftentimes, the worst pain and the worst suffering in our life is brought about by our own decisions. I think most of us can attest to that at some point. And one of the stories that stands out to me the most in scriptures is actually the woman at the well. You see, in the gospel, there's the story of this Samaritan woman who Jesus meets on one of his trips at a well. Now, she is at the well in the middle of the day. And the reason that she is there is because she is kind of a social pariah. We, we find that out later in her story, that she is, because of her own life choices, is not looked well upon by her community. And she's sitting there, and Jesus, even though he knows all this, is just talking with her like a normal human being. And at no point does Jesus on his own bring up the own the sin in her life. In fact, it's kind of interesting. Uh, what happens is this woman who is just talking with Jesus at first, surprised by him, the more she learns about him, the more uncomfortable she seems to get. I don't know if you guys have ever had this experience talking with someone who doesn't really know you, and as they find out that you're a Christian, they get kind of uncomfortable and weird. Or maybe that's just a thing pastors go through. Um, <laughs> but I have seen this happen for, before enough times that I read this story and I'm like, oh yeah. I, I, this is absolutely true. I can see it happening where people just talking to you, bearing their life story, and they're like, oh, you're a pastor. Uh, <laughs> let's change the subject. And she does that with Jesus. And Jesus in his patience and kindness continues to reach out to her, to both be kind and compassionate while also still getting to the root of her sin. And so it comes out that this woman has actually been married and divorced multiple times, and the man she is living with right now is not her husband. 
Now, this is one, this is just uh, sinful life choices again and again. But on top of that, this is the first century, right? That might be somewhat normalized now, although even today, I think someone who's been married and divorced, I believe it said five times and then married or living with someone, not her husband would still be kind of like, really? It's a bit much, don't you think? Even today, that would be, be viewed maybe harshly. But when Jesus interacting with her does not treat her harshly, Instead, he just shows her her sin, loves her, treats her gently, and it is through her that Jesus reaches her whole village. In other words, this woman who is definitely hurting and bruised, but she's hurting and bruised by her own actions. Jesus still loves and is compassionate and gentle and loving towards her. What does that tell us? It tells us that for those of us who are in pain, those of us who are hurting, and even if it's because of our own actions, our own sinful and terrible and evil choices, Jesus does not look at you with anger and disappointment. But if you are a child of God, he looks at you with compassion and gentleness. And he calls you out of your sin, not out of some sort of anger, but because he cares deeply for you and he knows how much it has wounded you. This is an area I actually want to linger on to first. Um, I want to say this statement that I've had pushback from. Uh, I've had pushback from the statement, and so it's made me think about it more. I'm like, is this actually true? And it's true. So I want to say this, and, and when you hear it, I want you to think about, do, do I truly believe this or not? If you are a child of God, then God is not angry with you. Let me say that again. No matter what you have done recently, if you are a child of God, God is not angry with you. God is not disappointed with you. God is not angry with you. Why can I say that? When, you, when I don't even know what you've done, when I don't even know your simple choices, how, why can I say that? Well, because the message of the gospel is this that Jesus willingly took the full wrath of God on himself so that if you are a child of God, there is no wrath remaining. If you are a child of God, if you have put your faith in Jesus, then there's nothing left on you. There's no disappointment. There is no anger. All of that has been poured out on Jesus. So what is God's heart and what is his attitude towards you? It is one of care and compassion and love and gentleness. I'm going to say something even more. If you were a child of God, because this is some, sometimes hurting people have this idea that God is punishing them, that God is angry with them, that God is disappointed with them. But I want you to hear this. If you are a child of God, God is not punishing you. Now, I know the question that's probably forming in some of your minds, so let me ask it. But Josh, doesn't it say that God disciplines those he loves? Absolutely. But here's the thing. We have this messed up view of discipline in the scripture. When we see discipline, we view that as punishment. But that's not what discipline is. I think we even kind of know this. When we talk about discipline and when we want to become more disciplined, a lot of that is like training, 
right? So if you're an athlete, to discipline yourself means to proactively train yourself so that when you go through the strenuousness of an uh, of the actual game, you're prepared, right? In the same way, God prepares us for this life by giving us discipline and strengthening us and training us. That is not a punishment. There is corrective discipline. When you are going down a sinful route, God knows that that sin will rob you of so much joy and happiness. And he does not want you to do that. So he will correct you. But we need to understand that that is not punishment. And why why can I say that? Because once again, the full punishment for our sins fell on Jesus. And this is important because sometimes discipline feels like punishment for us, but it's incredibly important for us to understand God's heart in it. It is not to punish you. It is not to say, you did this wrong thing, and yeah, my son took most of it, but you still need to suffer. No. What God is doing is he's saying, you are hurting yourself and causing yourself suffering because of sin, and I want that to end, so I'm correcting you so that you don't continue in misery. That is a very different view of God, and we need to grasp that as Christians. What is God's heart for the hurting? Look at Jesus, who is gentle and compassionate to the sinners and the hurting, and even those who are hurting who brought it upon themselves. And that is the bruised reed. But what about the smoldering wick? What is the image that is brought about in this passage of the smoldering wick? And what I put in this is that Jesus, it shows Jesus' heart for the weary, and that's true, but if I were to write that this week, I would add, I would change that word. I would say Jesus' heart for the weak. You see, the image of a smoldering wick is this, is, is this wick that has a little bit of the light and a little bit of the heat, not enough to actually ignite into fire and provide warmth and light, but just enough to, to smolder and to smoke. The energy is there, but it's not really doing And so this is Jesus' message to all of us Christians who never feel like they are doing enough, like they are holy enough, like their emotions are passionate enough for Jesus. We feel lukewarm in our worship for Jesus. We feel lukewarm in our actions for Jesus. We are like the man who, when he approached Jesus to heal his sons, if Jesus could, Jesus said, if. I can do anything if you have faith. And the man said, I believe I have faith. Help me with my unbelief. That is each of our cry if we are the weak and we are the weary. I think all of us go through this. We look at our lives and we look at the sacrifice Jesus has paid for us. And then we look how we measure up and we say, man, I am not doing enough to follow Jesus. I think all of us, if we are genuine followers of Jesus, feel this at some point. But we have to look no further than Jesus' interactions with his own disciples. If we understand how does he feel towards those of us who are weak, those of us whose efforts at holiness, quite frankly, are are kind of sad at times, right? Well, look at his apostles, his disciples. They were constantly not understanding Jesus' teachings. They were constantly not showing faithfulness and, and, and endurance But never once in these scriptures do we see Jesus lose his patience. Every time Jesus responds to his apostles, it is with incredible patience and compassion. Yes, he calls them to belief. He calls them to faith. Even after he's been raised from the dead, even after the disciples, we've been learning about this in Sunday school, have been told by the women who have seen Jesus raised from the dead, it says that they still doubt it. 
They still didn't believe. But when Jesus sees them next, he doesn't rebuke them for their weak faith. Instead, he shows them himself. He's like, you won't believe unless you see me? Here I am. And then he calls them towards faith. You see, how does Jesus feel to those who are weak when it comes to their Christian life? I think we can see that in his interactions in every story of the gospel. He is, God is not impatient with you. God is not agitated and frustrated for your slow growth and your weak faith. God knows who you are and he knew who you would be before he saved you. And he loves you and he is changing you. And, and guess what? Even though it feels like it's taking forever, God promises that one day he will complete that change in you. He will eventually perfect you. It feels like that day may never come. I get that. It feels like your growth is incredibly slow sometimes. But God promises he will complete that work. God is not impatient with you. It's not like God was surprised. He saved you and he's like, this kid is just not growing. I did not expect that when I saved him. No, God is not surprised. He's not impatient. He's not harsh with you in your weakness. But it is also towards the weary. This section of scripture comes within the context of Jesus teaching about the Sabbath. And, and one of the most famous phrases in here is where Jesus talks to all the weary and heavy at heart. He says, come to me and my burden is light and my yoke is easy. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Jesus's message for those of you who are exhausted those of you who are exhausted with all attempts at being good, with exhausted with all that is evil in this world, who are exhausted with all of the sorrows and the pains that come with life in a fallen world, Jesus' message is, come to me and I will give you rest. Jesus is not rebuking you for not having the energy and the stamina to go full force. Sometimes I think in Christianity we get this image that those who are the most driven and the most productive are the, the, the best Christians. But really the message is that they're just pretending that all Christians, because we live in a fallen world, they're at some point weary and burdened by the cares of life. And instead of driving forward and pushing through, Jesus calls us to him so that we may rest. And so what happens when we harden ourselves off from the grace of Jesus in these times? I think we can see that in the teachers of the law. We can see that when we harden ourselves off from the grace of Jesus and don't, in fact, receive his comfort when we are hurting, we become like the leaders of the law here who are uncompassionate towards others who are hurting. We become like those who become impatient with those who are weak and who are weary. We are constantly busy because we think we need to perform for God and we need to do something to impress him and to make sure he's not disappointed with him. And all it results in is exhaustion and disappointment and anger, and we just become a bitter and harsh person because we've cut ourselves off from the grace of God. But there's one more group I want to talk to, and it's it's not just the hurting and it's not just the weary, but it's what results kind of at the end of that. It's for those who are discouraged. I think all of us, when we look around at the world at us and we see the depth 
of evil that has resulted from the fall, which was often the result of even our own actions. We look at just the immensity of evil and the immensity of problems in the world, and we think there is nothing that will ever change it. And we become discouraged, and we become disheartened. And Jesus' message for us is one of hope. It says this, that not only will Jesus not break the reed that is bruised and not snuff out the wick that is smoldering, but he will do so until he brings justice to victory. And it is in his name that us, the Gentiles, will find hope. What does that tell us? That is telling us two important messages as Christians. One is that in Jesus there is hope. No matter how dark the world is when we look around us, no matter how hopeless the situation is, Jesus has promised that there will be victory and he always keeps his promises. Now, I want you to not hear what I'm not saying. Let's be honest, these last year, last two years have been incredibly hard for a lot of us, right? It's not just this pandemic which has separated us from people who have seen people around us get sick, some even die, but it's also all that comes with us, the loss of jobs, this feeling of panic in the air around us, this feeling of anger too that comes with us in the world around us, and and, and it has made for a really hard couple of years for most of us. And so I'm not going to stand up here and say to you, 2022 is going to be better. We have the promises of God to stand by that the circumstances are going to change and this next year is going to be amazing. Because as hard as these last two years have been in the grand scheme of history, of all of the fallen world, they're still comparatively good. I can't give you a message that somehow our circumstances won't be bad or maybe even worse this year. I can't do that. But what I can tell you is no matter how bad things may get, no matter how many personal tragedies, no matter how many earth-changing events may occur, that Jesus is with you. And not only is he with you, but eventually he will bring them to end and that every single moment of suffering he will redeem. You see, one of the messages in the New Testament is not just that, that God will restore all things to how they were in the beginning, and not just that he will make you forget about all the suffering, but that somehow, in some way, every single moment of suffering he will redeem so that it will somehow work towards the good of those he loved. Which means that not a single tear is wasted, not a single restless night is wasted, not a single moment of depression and sorrow and anger and hurt and pain is wasted, but he redeems each and every moment of it so that when we look back of it through the view of eternity, we will say, I am truly glad for the glory God has wrought through this. This is not to make light of any sorrow or any pain that you were going through. Sometimes I think as Christians, we we have this weird view of happiness in God where it's kind of a shallow cheeriness, you know? It's it's like we 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 kind of make light of the pain that we are going through or that other people are going through because we're like, ah, oh, but God is with us. And it's true that God is with us. But that doesn't mean that it's not painful still. 
God doesn't promise that he's taking us out of pain. What he's promising is that he will redeem it. And so with the pain, mixed with it is hope, and mixed in with it is beauty. And there is a promise there. Even though we can't see it yet, there is a promise that every moment of pain and sorrow and suffering, and even the good moments too, by the way, of joy and happiness, will be redeemed for our good and our joy. Because we serve a God who is gentle and compassionate to the hurting and the weak and the weary and the discouraged and the disheartened. And why, why is this import, so important for us to remember? I think about my days as a wrestler, by the way, if we're known for anything, it's for being really stupid with eating and food and starving ourselves. I never did that. But I will say from experience, there have been a couple moments where I've not fueled myself and yet I had an incredibly hard workout. If you've never experienced the moment where even though you are a trained athlete, your body can literally not function like you want it to anymore. Uh, let me just say it, it, is, it is not fun. <laughs> um, but, but there is a sort of truth in the physical realm that no matter how good of shape someone is in, if you do not fuel your body, it can't perform. You reach a wall. And sometimes I think we do this with the spiritual life. We, we, Christian life is often uh, in the scripture compared to a race. Think of it as a marathon. And oftentimes we're trying to run this marathon and yet at the same time we haven't eaten a thing. We're anorexics running a marathon, right? And, and that's what we do with grace here. Why is this message of grace so important? It's because we cannot give grace to people if we don't receive it first. We cannot love people if we do not receive love first. How do we change and grow as Christians? How can we give love, become more loving people, more gentle people, more grace-giving, compassionate people? Well, we can't do it on our own. And when we try without first feasting on the grace that is offered to us in the gospel, we're, we're kind of like running a marathon after we've just been fasting for a month. It doesn't work. We might take a couple steps, but eventually we're done, right? Eventually our short temper gets to us. Eventually our impatience gets to us. But when you are feasting on the glories of the gospel, when time and time again you come to the scriptures and you just sit in the mercy and the grace that God offers you through his son, Jesus, you can't help but be changed by it. When you are loved as completely and as grandly as God loves you, it can't help but make you into a more loving person. Why is this message, do I feel, is so important for you? This is why. There's no other way to be changed as a Christian but to be changed by God's grace. And so my invitation for you at the start of this year is to, in, to dive into the Scripture, to feast on God's grace that he is offering to you through his Son, Jesus, and to be changed by that. So what is this message from Isaiah saying about Jesus? Well, it's saying to us this, that the heart of God is shown most clearly to us in the person of Jesus, who is, shows gentle compassion to the hurting and to the weary and to the discouraged. And so that my hope for you at the beginning of this year is that you uh, 
together with the rest of this church, will dive into God's gospel about his son, and you will find just incredible feasting on his grace and on his mercy and on his compassion towards us. So I'm going to pray as we continue to worship together. Father, I pray that this message of the gospel doesn't just sink into our heads, but sinks into our very bones, that we become more and more aware every moment, every day of the compassionate love that you have for us, shown in your son Jesus, that we never grow tired of returning to your gospel, that we discover more and more of the unsearchable depths of your love for us each day, and that by it we are transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank <laughs> you.